We're pleased to be joined today by Adam Foss for our keynote afternoon speaker. He's a former district attorney in the juvenile division of the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office in Boston, and he's a fierce advocate for criminal justice reform and the importance specifically of the role of the prosecutor in ending mass incarceration. So many of the things that we've already been discussing today, such as John Pfaff's remark, are particularly relevant as he told me at lunch that he had a fanboy moment about John Pfaff, so. <laughs> The root name, Mr. Foss, one of the most influential black Americans of 2016. In 2014, the Massachusetts Bar Association, Association voted him Prosecutor of the Year. In addition to a TED Talk that garnered over 1 million views, and I checked today, it's actually 1.4 million now. Uh, he has been a featured speaker on Google Zeitgeist, the Aspen Ideas Festival, Forbes 400, and gathering, a gathering of leaders, a summit series in the Atlantic's Race and Justice Summit, and he works with Grammy award-winning artist, I like this one a lot, John Legend on his efforts to end mass incarceration. Please join me in welcoming Adam Foss. Uh, thank you all for having me here. It's, it's so weird to stand behind a podium like with lights on you and talk to you. Um, I would really like to uh, sort of talk to you about what I've been up to and sort of where I think criminal justice reform is heading. But first, um, I wanna give you an idea of like what our system could look like if each one of us who are public servants, um, who go to work every day to serve the public, thought about our jobs in a different way. So um, with that, it's just a really short video. What's up, young blood? How you doing, man? Good. Good to see you. He spoke to me before I went to the courthouse, and he's like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, this is not your life. Like, you don't want to do this. That was basically like the first chance he gave me right there. And at first, I was surprised. People think about like DAs and they think they just trying to lock you up. After I got to know him, I understood like what he was really trying to do. With Adam, it's like he really wants us to live a better life. Like he knows that with some kids, that's not the right route. He's giving me another chance for a reason. Every day I think about it. Every day I think about it. So as the video indicated, Stanley, uh, it's actually a misnomer, Stanley was arrested once for two armed robberies in one weekend. And when I met Stanley, I had the opportunity to make a decision about what happened with Stanley because I was a prosecutor standing in a courtroom with really no oversight. Um, I was, I was a, more of a senior level prosecutor, but this is something that plays out in courtrooms every day, thousands and thousands of times a day. Um, and despite that happening, and despite the fact that prosecutors uh, are really the interface after the police, but before really entering the criminal justice system, the fight, despite the fact that the prosecutors are sitting there making these decisions every day, we've gone pretty unscathed in terms of reform. In fact, if you think about where you were in 2000, and you think about all of the things that we've fixed as minor inconveniences in life, renting a movie, you, have, you used to have to go to Blockbuster and get a late fee, and now you can just go on your computer. Um, looking up something uh, that you needed for a research paper, you might have to go to the library, use an encyclopedia, maybe a CD-ROM had an encyclopedia, now you just go on your cell phone. Uh, dating a woman, you actually had to go out and talk to someone um, <laughs> and like buy them a drink, and now you can just swipe right. So um, you, think about, you think about where we've come in the last 15, 20 years in terms of reform and all of these other things that, that make our lives easier, and yet we've left this entire segment of people behind us 
uh, not trying to make their lives any easier, uh, not trying to sort of reform the system in any innovative way. And it's almost unconscionable that uh, if I went to prosecute a case tomorrow, it would look very much the same way that it did 20 years ago and 20 years before that, and all the way back to the signing of the Magna Carta. Um, and so Stanley and I were standing in a courtroom, and I, and I was sitting there with this un immeasurable amount of power in my hand as to what was going to happen to Stanley that day and the day after and the day after that. And frankly, what is lost on a lot of us is that it's not just what happens to Stanley that day or the day after or the day after or even the year after. It's what is going to happen to Stanley the rest of his life if I decide to prosecute this the same way that I've been taught to prosecute every single time. Armed robbery, two armed robberies, victims, there's a gun involved, the minimum mandatory sentences, there are lots of things that I should have done as because that's what I learned uh, to do with Stanley on that day to, to get the outcome that we want and that's to make our public safer. And when I was standing there and I was looking at Stanley and having sort of all, all this conflict, I thought about um, me when I was Stanley's age or a little bit older than Stanley. In fact, I uh, just completed my freshman year uh, of college and I was standing outside of my pickup truck and I was looking in the face of a police officer and I remember the look on the police officer's face of, as I was handing him thousands and thousands of dollars of bundled cash, putting it in his hands and I was handing him the remnants of the pounds of marijuana that I had sold over the course of la the last few months thinking to myself that I was lucky that I didn't get caught with that, I just got caught with the money. And I remember handing it to the police officer and in my own mind, not really knowing anything about the criminal justice system, knowing that my life was about to end. I knew that I'd probably get kicked out of school, maybe I'd go to jail, maybe I'd get on probation, but I knew that my life at that moment in time, despite the fact that I was 19 years old, had had some minor scrapes of the criminal justice system. I knew the gravity of what was about to happen to me because it happened to my friends, it happened to my peers, it happened to my neighbors. What I didn't know at that point in time was that if I had even been arraigned on those charges, if I even had gone to a courtroom and faced a judge and had been arraigned on uh, trafficking or possession with intent to distribute or distribution of Class D, uh, I would have a criminal record. Regardless of what happened with the case, I'd have a criminal record. And because I was caught with that paraphernalia, with that money, with, that dr with those drugs in a school zone, it was a minimum mandatory sentence, and I didn't know at the time that that would have leveraged me into a plea deal that I probably would have taken because I didn't want to be in jail because I was 19 years old. And I wouldn't have known that had I taken that plea deal, I would have lost my driver's license, which is the rule in Massachusetts. I would have been on probation for two years, requiring me to stay away from the people that I was with, requiring me to get a job, an education, housing, to, to complete a class, all of these things that, uh, frankly, I wasn't very good at in the first place, and I would have to do so saddled with a criminal conviction, and I would have to pay for somebody to, monitoring me, to monitor me doing it. I would have been kicked out of my family's home and likely had to find my own housing, having this felony record, having the inability to get financial aid, having the inability to get uh, a loan to, to rent an apartment. I didn't know that, that just that one brush, just that one conviction would have increased the likelihood that I would re-enter the criminal justice system over and over and over again, leading to a life on the installment plan of touches with the criminal justice system getting worse and worse and worse as they went along, as they do thousands of times a day, every day across this country.
I didn't know any of that, but I knew how grave the situation was. And I sat there looking at this police officer thinking, my life is about to end, and then it didn't. It didn't end because that police officer pulled me over in my driveway. That police officer was my father. That police officer was white. I'm an adopted son of a Marine and a police officer, and uh, my parents are white. I just got the lucky ticket, and I got to live in a white neighborhood, and so I was surrounded by white privilege, even though I didn't really meet the qualifying uh, prerequisite. <laughs> and I remember standing there looking at Stanley and thinking, and it wasn't just Stanley, it was thousands of people before him and thousands of people after him, but I remember standing there with Stanley thinking, why is it fair that I got to screw up this bad? And it wasn't just that one time, it was tons of times before that and tons of times after. Why did I get to screw up that bad and just be allowed to sort of cruise through the young adult system that is college and grow up and stop doing these things? And Stanley, having done what he did, not because he's a criminal, not because he's a bad, incorrigible person, but because he lived in an environment where he had to make decisions that were predicated on, on the environmental factors that he was dealing with. Why is it fair for me to be standing here in front of you, working with John Legend, working with the President of the United States, and Stanley is going to go to state prison? The minimum mandatory sentence for what Stanley had done was 10 years in state prison, and had I arraigned him, Stanley likely, very likely, would have been held on bail that day. Stanley would have been held on bail until I, as a prosecutor, got my case together, which takes months and months and months of sending emails and getting emails back and requesting paperwork and getting that back and going to get photographs and getting that back, meeting with the grand juries, presenting my case, meeting with the witnesses, getting them prepared, and then the trial, which is a week, two weeks, and 50-50, I convict them or not. Why, like, why would I do that? Because I saw in Stanley what I saw in a lot of my other young people, which is somebody that needed someone to understand them. Not to forgive them, not to give them a free pass, but to understand why they got there and what we were going to do to keep them out the next time. Because I knew at this point in my career that prison wasn't working. I could have arraigned Stanley at 19 years old, and Stanley would have been held on a bail, and he would have been kicked out of school. He was still in high school. He's doing very well in high school, uh, not academically, but athletically. And he, he actually loved it. He wanted to graduate. He told me how many times it was important to him to graduate. And he told me that because he had a, a whole life story that had very little to do with that one afternoon or those two afternoons out in Franklin Park when he was robbing people. He told me about when he came to the United States of America with his parents who were very successful uh, government and, and uh, medical workers in the Dominican Republic, and when they got to the United States, their jobs went away because they couldn't speak English and because their licenses didn't transfer. And he told me that after years and years of years of trying and struggling and living in the projects that his father just one night up and left without telling the family, and his mother was left to care for these three boys. And he told me about when his older brothers started feeling that pressure that their mother wasn't able to get food on the table and their lights were off and their heat was off, that Stanley's brothers would start to go out and rob people, not because they were bad people or they're incorrigible, but because you don't have any idea what kind of pressure it is to see your mother cold 
or hungry or tired. And then he told me about when his brothers came up with this great scheme that they were going to rob people of dirt bikes. They were going to rob people of four-wheelers by going on to Craigslist, luring them into the city, taking them out into Franklin Park to test drive the trucks. And when they got the bikes off the truck, out came the guns, the driver drove away. Now they have dirt bikes that they can sell, and they're bringing home six, $7,000 at a time. And lacking the fundamental understanding of the cost-benefit of, of that, Stanley was telling me about how great he felt that his mother was able to have Christmas dinner at her house, that his mother didn't have to worry about the lights being on, that his mother didn't have to worry about the new baby that was in the house and how she was going to take care of him. So I said, Stanley, what is, what is it that you want to do? Because I know you don't want to be out here robbing people. So he says, I want to graduate from school, I want to play baseball, and I want to go to college. You ask any one of your children before they reach the age of 13, 14, 15 years old, and you will get very similar answers. There's nothing different than Stanley and your kids except that the neighborhood that he grew up in. And sure, what Stanley did was wrong and very wrong, and he needed to be punished and held accountable for it. But when are we as a society going to think that Maybe prison just isn't the only answer. What else could this look like? So I took Stanley aside. I said, Stanley, I'm going to take a risk on you. And in taking a risk, you assume responsibility. That responsibility is, if I take this risk and you go out and you do something bad, it's going to come back on me. And you don't want that, do you? No. Your ass is mine for the next two years. It's not going to be any probation. It's not going to be a guilty plea. I'm not even going to arraign you. We're going to accomplish everything that we would through this justice system without giving you that criminal record. And Stanley worked, and he worked, and he went to school, and he did community service, and he attended community meetings with me. He got the dirt bikes that he sold from the victims, gave them back to the victims. He met with the victims and apologized to them face-to-face because that's what the victims wanted. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked. At zero cost to the taxpayers. If I'd sent Stanley that day on a bail, the price tag for holding someone overnight in Massachusetts at Stanley's age is $300. The average length of a felony, serious felony case like that in Massachusetts is 13 months. So we'll call it a year. And if we had done that for Stanley, it's $300 a night. For a year, it's $109,000 a year. And I was a very good trial attorney. I was very good with my cases. And Stanley would have been convicted. I had the victim support. Stanley had, uh, we had done a search warrant. On we, we had executed a search warrant and found the gun, which was fake. Um, the victims wouldn't have gotten their stuff back. And Stanley would have done 10 years in state prison. All at a cost to the taxpayers. And arguably, we have increased public safety by, by some increment because Stanley, the big, bad, violent person that you saw back here, would have been off the street for 10 years. And that's what we as prosecutors are bred to think. If you do this tomorrow, we're safe. We're not bred to think about 
what happens in 10 years when Stanley comes out. In fact, the biggest irony about criminal justice reform when it comes to prosecutors is that if you take a risk today and it, and it blows up in your face tomorrow, you're an idiot, even though the, there's the like, chance that you might benefit somebody. However, last year in Camden, New Jersey, of 67 of the homicides that they cleared, 64 of them were, were juveniles that had been committed to the Department of Youth Services. Nobody was coming after the prosecutors that sent all those kids to DYS, even though that 64 out of 67 of them went on to murder somebody. It's baffling when you talk about criminal justice reform that we're so afraid of doing something different when different might actually yield better results. So instead of sending Stanley to state prison, I, I did what I did with Stanley. And, and I tell this, this story of Stanley, I told my own story because there's one thing that my man John Pfaff was up here talking about earlier. Um, if we're going to end this mass incarceration problem, we need to look other places than the police and sentencing laws and prisons. And we need to rid ourselves of the vocabulary low-level nonviolent offenders. Everyone in this room, I hate to tell you, are low-level nonviolent offenders. <laughs> you are. It's no indictment on your character. It's just true. All of us go through this period in our life called adolescence where we do really dumb shit. And sometimes that is against the law. Most of us have the privilege not to be locked up in the system, but these kids that I'm talking about, Stanley and Willie and Juwan and Eric and all of these other young men that I'm still texting today don't have that ability. They don't have that privilege. Some of you are even low-level nonviolent drug offenders. That's okay. That's okay. It's no indictment on your character. You're sitting here. And I want you to think about, like, why is it okay for me to be sitting here? And yet we're heralding as, as positives that we're doing things to save those people from prison. We need to think about expanding our conversation beyond what is just palpable because they're just like us. Because the people that we're out here talking about as violent offenders which there, there are some violent offenders. There are people who are violent offenders, and that's why I'm not up here saying we don't need police, we don't need prison, we don't need prosecutorial discretion. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who do violent things that aren't violent people. So what Stanley did was real violent. That kid up there that you just saw who with a gap in his teeth and just sort of like ho-hum, he is a violent offender. And yet if Stanley was sitting in this room and you hadn't seen that, and you talked to him, you talked to him about his interests, about his passions, I guarantee you that you would find parts of yourself and parts of your children in him. And yet we send people who come straight out of law school, who've gone to a very nice college, who've gone to a high school in the suburbs, who have never had to experience trauma or violence or poverty or loss or interactions with the police that are negative, or, or having your, your school system uh, tell you that you can't bring books home because there's not enough, people who have suffered from domestic violence or sexual violence or seen it or lived it or have just gone to bed every single night hearing sirens out their window or sit in a classroom and if you ask them in the sixth grade, how many of you know, know somebody that's died of gang violence, 80% of the people in, their, in the room raise their hands. Those are the people who are being impacted by the criminal justice system, and the people who are making decisions about their lives every single day have had none of those experiences. 
because we haven't taken the time to think about reforming the system. We haven't taken the time to think about who are these people that we're talking about. We're not going to reduce prison numbers by doing the same shit we've been doing. We're not going to reduce prison numbers by putting body cams on people. We're not. We're not going to, we're not going to end mass incarceration by ending the war on drugs. We're not. We're not going to end mass incarceration by getting rid of minimum mandatory sentences, even though they're important. Let me tell you as a prosecutor, if you take away minimum mandatory sentences from me, I will find a way to lock that person up for just as long if, if that's what I'm out to do. Minimum mandatory discretion makes it easier, but I will find a way because I'm the government. I'm the most powerful person in the courtroom. You can take that away from me all you want. If you don't fix this prosecutor issue, we're not going to get there. Here's the rub. It's actually not the rub. It's, it's the, the reason that you should be positive about all this. There's, this, there's a lot of misconceptions about prosecutors coming into the office. They're bad people. They, they're incentivized to get convictions. You get money from the private prison industry. All garbage. Throw it out. The people who come into the prosecutor's office want to do the right thing. They walk in there, and, and they're not thinking to themselves, I'm going to lock up as many black people as possible because they're more violent. I want to endorse everything the police do because I believe everything the police do are right. I love the prison population. I don't believe in mass incarceration. Let's send them all away because it makes me safer. That's not what we're saying on our first day. What we're saying is I want to help the people that are over there. I represent the state. When I stand up in front of a courtroom, I say my name is Adam Foss. I represent the Commonwealth. And I know since 95% of people are coming out, that means that person over there too. So you have this energy. You have this passion of people, young people, who are coming in this office, and guess what? They walk into some place that has had no reform ever. And one of the biggest pieces of reform that we just have never had is what are our metrics? What makes you a good prosecutor? There are 300, 400 kids in Boston right now that have their high school diplomas that never would have because of the way that I prosecuted them and what I required of them th during the duration of their prosecution. I didn't receive any award. I didn't get any raise. I wasn't even recognized for that. I won 38 of 40 trials, and I'm the man at my office. Even though trials... John, I, I don't know that there are any data, but I'm guessing that, that there are no data that suggests how many trials you win increases public safety by any increment because at the end of the day, it's just this archaic thing that we do because it makes us feel good and the public can see it and it looks awesome. If you murder somebody tomorrow, I'll try you in 18 months from now and if I convict you, you go to jail forever. Tell me how that is making my community in Dorchester any safer because that entire 18-month period, there are people committing crimes over and over and over again that we need to be dealing with, not because they're bad people, not because they're incorrigible, but because there are things that we are not addressing as a criminal justice system to do that. Our metrics need to follow the rest of this innovation. Uber, Snapchat, uh, any one of these online dating things, all of that runs on data. People collect information, they match that information to what people need, and they succeed because they're, they're doing that. Why aren't we doing it when the minor inconvenience that we're trying to fix is the worst civil and human rights violation of our time? And it begins and ends with the people who are making those decisions on the front lines who already want to do the right thing. We need to equip them with the tools that they need, with the information that they need, to let them know you're doing a good job. It doesn't matter how, how many trials I win. It matters how many people are now employed. 
matters how many people now have an education. It matters how many people are now in mental health treatment that weren't receiving it before. How many people are in substance abuse treatment that weren't receiving it before. All of those things, as a prosecutor, I have the influence over. And I have it on the first day that I meet someone. You don't want to go to jail? Great. Guess what? You're going to go to school every single day. Every day. And I'm going to check up on you. And if you don't, we'll be back in here, and this is unpleasant for the both of us, and we'll work through it. Stanley wasn't perfect. Stanley didn't just say, oh, God, you gave me a chance on an armed robbery, and now I'm, I'm perfect. No, Stanley reoffended. Granted, it was fair evasion, not robbing people with guns. Stanley got suspended from school. Stanley smoked weed. I know. <laughs> I know. That's what I said. I could, have, I could have pulled the plug on Stanley, but I, but I didn't. And as a system, we need to get used to this idea that, that, that our addiction to mass incarceration, our addiction to punishment, we need, we, need, we need some rehabilitation. We need treatment. We need rehab. And part of any 12-step program is that there, there is going to be failure. We need to acknowledge that not everybody, not every Stanley is going to succeed. But right now, everyone we send to prison, everyone we send to jail is coming out a little bit worse. And there are stories of people who have made it, and that's great, and all that's good, but the vast majority of people that we're sending into the system that also has never been reformed, we're not winning. We need to start thinking about how, if we're going to get out of this situation, what are we going to do? And I can stand up here and talk about it all day long, but now I have my man John Pfaff who is like, no, this is, this is real. Like, there's math. There, there, there's science behind this. If we want to move the needle on criminal justice reform, it's in the prosecutor's office, and every person in here has the ability to change it. Whether you're an advocate, whether you're a prosecutor, whether you're a cop, whether you're a defense attorney, whether you're a judge, you're all citizens who vote. And if you care about this system, if you care about criminal justice reform and any mass incarceration, then you should know who your prosecutor is and what they're doing. You should know what the line is doing every single day. Court is a public place, and you should go and sit one day, just one day if you haven't been, and see what your prosecutors are doing, because I guarantee you, you will be appalled. But then also remember that they're good people that just need a little bit of direction and focus. If you have a community-based organization, if you have a nonprofit, if you're an advocate, and you know of things that will help the people that are standing there getting prosecuted with crimes, go up to your local prosecutor and be like, I can help you with this problem. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, they want it, because despite what happened last, a couple weeks ago, on the state and local level, people are really, really fired up about prosecutors and criminal justice reform. A month and a half ago, not even a month and a half ago, a month ago, I uh, received a phone call from Stanley. Uh, Stanley said, you know, school is crazy. Uh, I'm getting better grades than I ever thought I could. And I said, why? And he said, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm in college. And I'm not in high school anymore, and, and people here know how to, how to treat me differently. I was playing Division I baseball. I sat with him while he signed his letter of intent to play Division I baseball. And the last thing that Stanley said was, I think I want to change my major to criminal justice because I want to work with you when I'm out. I don't care what side of the fence you're on, if it's the we're spending too much money or it's just not right to do to people or, or you know, just a blend of those things. As a prosecutor, if my job is to improve public safety and bring justice to people, think about Stanley coming out of state prison in seven years or Stanley coming out of college in three years, and you tell me, you tell me, 
if I've done my job as a prosecutor in helping Stanley graduate from college. I appreciate all of you and the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me here.